Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Welcome back to Communicating Like You Give a Damn. And I'm your host, Kim Clark. Today, I can't wait to have you hear from my mentor, Reverend Deborah L. Johnson. She goes affectionately by Rev D. <laughs> and uh, she is Rev D now. That is how she is known. And so let me give you a little bit of backstory, and then I'm going to kick it over to her, and we're all just going to soak in what she's going to share today. As I mentioned, Rev D is my mentor. I met her in April of 2004. That is 19 years from now <laughs> since we're recording in April of 2023. So it has been almost 20 mm. years, Rev that we have known each other and you've been through everything with me and I've been through everything with you. And there's been so much life that has happened during this time and our time together from the first day I met you, I knew I wanted to work with you. I wanted to learn from you. And the more and more that I worked and learned from you, the more and more I started incorporating what I was learning from you into my day job. And at the time I was running internal communications at global companies like PayPal, GoDaddy and GitHub. And something very significant happened in 2016 where it brought, it cr crystallized the work that you and I had been doing into my workplace. And that was the Pulse shooting tragedy, the mass shooting at Pulse in Orlando, Florida. And there was a call to action from employees at the company I was working at at the time saying, we're distracted. We can't focus on our work. This is too much. We have a lot of feelings. We don't know what to do with it. There's anger. We've got to do something. What can we do? And I have you on my speed dial. Everybody should have somebody like you on their speed dial <laughs> and you're on my speed dial. And although I had not been to a vigil before that, I said, I'm going to put together a virtual vigil. Will you come be a part of it and, 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 ho and be a part of it and run it. And you were in, you were in, and it was just a few hours later after I had put together an executive sponsor of the uh, pride employee resource group, uh, a note out to the whole company and I said, okay, everybody, you know, book some conference rooms and get together so we can be in community no matter where we are in the company and be a part of this virtual vigil. And giving people that space, giving employees that permission to talk it out, share what was going on for them. I was forever changed, forever changed. I saw the impact on the employees. And I started to back up from there and say, if I didn't have the relationships in place, if I didn't have a relationship with, with you 
and, and access to somebody who could really walk us through some serious feelings, even though we're in the workplace and to help us try to make sense out of something that was so senseless, right? And so much tragedy and violence has happened since then, obviously. And there's been this pivot in the summer of 2020 that we're still trying to wrap our heads around and improve on. We're at this place and and trying to grapple and, and embed and figure out and get educated around what diversity, equity, and inclusion is as far as the workplace is concerned. So I would love to hear from you. Please first start off by introducing yourself because one of the things that I know everyone should understand about your background is that you've been in this work for over 40 years and you've seen everything since. So giving us your background and then the context of diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace, getting us to where we are today. I think that'd be really helpful for for folks to kind of get themselves grounded on what we're trying to do today based on where we've been and where we want to go. Well, thank you, Kim. Yes, I have been in the field for a number of years. I joke sometimes and say that I was doing diversity work back when we would have paid you to take the <laughs> to take the work out. <laughs> you know, before it was an official field. I have been involved in many, many movements. Um, I come from the Los Angeles area and I think my own personal background informs so much of how I see things at the tail end of the baby boom and growing up in the feminist movement and the black empowerment movement and the gay liberation movement. And, you know, I can go on and on and how my life has been this intersectionality and growing up in Los Angeles, one of the most diverse places on the planet. I grew a real sense of compassion for what it meant to come together and to be together in um, this thing called oneness. I've done many, many, many corporate, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, smaller CBOs, academic, you know, institutions, you know, community groups. There's there's no shortage of where the work can be done, and I'm I'm happy to offer up whatever it is um, that I can here. One of the things that I get from clients is they don't really understand the historical context of how of of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They they kind of liken it was like oh it was called affirmative action, and now it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and. Now there's talk about not even using those terms because they're so triggering by the the dominant majority within the workplaces. So there's this kind of effort of like, maybe we don't use the word diversity because, you know, people, uh, white males, for example, may not see themselves in that work. Well, one part of that is that that's kind of the fault of us as communicators, where we haven't painted a picture with them in the frame. Um, but so, but that's another conversation. But kind of help us understand a little bit more of the historical evolution of the workplace as it relates to identity, inclusion, equity, et cetera. I think I'd like to preface my comments before I talk about it um, specifically, you know, workplace related, 
And I would like to relate it to the United States as, as a whole. Now, granted that a lot of our companies are multinational and um, they're global, you know, however, the United States as a democracy is one of the oldest democracies on the planet right now. And our history has in fact inspired so many other um, democracies. When you look at the roots and the foundations of the United States, when we talk about equity and justice for all, and that everyone has been created and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is an ideal. Okay, But the people who wrote that didn't really mean it <laughs> in its broader context. So when you ask me the question of what is DEI right now, I have to say the same thing that I have to say about the nation. And I think Langston Hughes said it beautifully when he said, America has never been America to me. Mm. But this day I vow it will be. So th there's a way in which the history of DEI parallels sort of the history of the nation where there were a lot of promises. There were a lot of things that were put forth as these high ideals, but not necessarily the intent back behind it to really apply it to all of the places where it can be applied. So there's the history of what has happened. And then there's the potentiality of what it can be. And we're always in this dynamic tension because too many people will look at history at what has been and get into pessimism. And there are other people who will look into the promise and get into the possibilities of it. And it's always interesting to me that the ones who have been marginalized and oppressed the most are the ones that actually have the most hope and who believe in the system the most. There's this kind of perverse irony in that, that the ones who were slaved, enslaved value freedom more. Mm. And their taste for it, their hunger for it is so much stronger. Yeah. Yes. And instead of denouncing a nation that rejected to them, rejected them, there is the opposite. There is a full embrace and a willingness to make of that nation a place that is equally available for themselves as well as everyone else. And this kind of broader sort of cosmology of it all is deeply rooted in the workplace as well. Because the workplace is just a microcosm of the society. So any work that we've done towards diversity, equity, or inclusion in the workplace, we've done it because of the state of the society. There's always been something that we've been trying to get at. So the original efforts towards the opening up the workplace was to be in alignment with these high aspirations that we have had about equality and justice for all. So my generation was the first generation of the integration movement. 
And we think of integration sometimes as just mixing things up. But the root of the word integrate is integer, which means whole, that you bring the pieces together to make a wholeness. You hear me say all the time that the only thing that ever needs to be healed is the sense of separation. And segregation Mm -hmm. is separation. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. So when we first came into the workplace with the notion of affirmative action, there's a lot of revisionist history about this. Because there is this notion in people's minds that affirmative action was somehow about diluting the competency of the labor force and somehow just trying to mix it up and bring any old body in just to colorize of the workplace. There's nothing further from the truth. If you look at the earliest cases of affirmative action, it was just the opposite, just the opposite. It was the fact that people who had been in the workplace for such a long time weren't getting affirmed. They were getting passed over. One of the biggest suits um, that really set the case for for all of this was AT&T, whom I worked with. And the women of AT&T sued. And they were suing not just because they couldn't get in the door, but because they were in the door and kept getting passed up. They found themselves training people who were less senior than they were, less qualified, who were leapfrogging all over them. So when we first started to come up with this notion about the affirmative action, it was, in fact, to take action that affirmed and it was meant to push companies a little bit further to work a little bit harder to diversify their applicant pool. Because it was always, well, we don't have any, you know, we can't find any. Right. Yeah. But but, but if you're only within your own circle and you never reach mm-hmm. out, then you're not going to find them. This is really, really important. Nobody was saying, look for anybody less competent. They were saying, use a little bit more effort to find people who are, in fact, equally competent. Okay. Then affirmative action started to get this bad rap of somehow or another letting people in who were, quote, unquote, inferior. And that notion, but once again, you know, it's the revisionist history. If I were to once again compare it to the nation, it's the same revisionist history that we're having now in discussions about immigration. Like somehow or another, the immigrants or the new people are diluting the workforce or the gene pool, like the, the employment gene pool, when in fact, they're the backbone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're the backbone, you know, of the nation. So what we've initially were doing, and I want to make this distinction very important here, in those initial efforts to diversify the workplace, there was no intent to diversify the workplace. They were attempting to diversify the workforce, 
but with the same kind of melting pot mentality that we had mm-hmm. as a nation, that you come to the United States and you forego your nation, your culture, your history, your religion, and you become homogenized into like American. And this was the same notion that we had in the corporate environment. We'll just get almost like the military, you know, we'll just get a lot of people in here, but then they're going to all shift and change and adapt to our corporate environment and our corporate culture. So when I would go out to my clients sometimes, I I would say to them, well, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is you've done really well in your diversification efforts. The bad news is you've done really well in your diversification efforts. <laughs> and, right. and nobody can get along. They, they, they don't know how to get along with each other. So, so that was the next stage. But so, so the next stage was, was trying to help people overcome things like unconscious bias. Um, how do we communicate? you know, with one another in ways that aren't as um, offensive and, you know, off-putting. It was really about like cultural shift and change. You know, we started to morph into things that were more empowering. You know, how can we do more mentorship and leadership development? And then it started to shift from being so much an internal consideration to external and markets you know, how can we diversify our markets and how can we get people in the workplace who reflect our markets so that they can bring whatever that little nuance is that 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 might make us more competitive, you know, in the marketplace. And we've seen a lot of different iterations and, and shifts. But as you and I have said, which you just mentioned before, unfortunately, the way that the diversity efforts have been conducted for too long, diversity has become a synonym for non-white. So when people even use that term, well, we, we want to bring in diverse candidates. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? You know, right. it's like this right. code word. So part of the backlash, unfortunately, is that the vision that has been painted of what it would be like when we are successful in all of our efforts hasn't empowered everyone to really see themselves in it. So we're running across the same thing on the national plane and the social political plane that we're having in the corporate environment. Corporates are just a microcosm of people feeling like other people are valued more. These other people have more rights. We're somehow left out or we are excluded or we're being outnumbered. Um, They're taking over, you know, everything. And we've got to, you know, stand up here. So, so why should I spend any efforts trying to make their lives more comfortable in any kind of way when I'm the one that's being disadvantaged here and our DEI efforts are taking place now within the backdrop of this narrative that's going out there, which is making it much more important, critical, 
for us to articulate clearly what it is that we're trying to accomplish and why. Big news, friends! We have found a way to duplicate the content we share. Now it'll be available everywhere all at once. You can now pre-order the DEI Communications Blueprint. <sighs> this is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients all over the world. And by taking this video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain confidence, and shift DEI messages to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we threw in some more bonuses for those who pre-order ahead of our fall launch. So go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com that is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started. That was, everyone just take a breath. Everyone just take a breath. The, the, the context of where things have been to where we are today, just grounding us into understanding how we got to where we are, where that pushback is coming from. I think that's what our part two will be. Rev, is we'll talk about that hesitancy, that pushback. Where's that coming from? How do we handle it? And I just need a second. <laughs> like that was, we've had these conversations for a long time, but I think that really context setting is just hitting me at even a deeper level and understanding how we got to where we are today. And that makes me want to transition to language. You mentioned narrative, mm -hmm. this narrative, and something that we've talked about is tying together what you said earlier of this, this sense of separation, because it's only a sense. So it's not true. It's a sense of, of separation. Tying that with this idea of that I, I've shared with you in some of our coaching calls of how I've seen out in organizations that there's a, a, a an othering, a re-marginalization that is either concerned to happen or is actually happening within the diversity, equity, and inclusive space. So having these two kind of paradoxical uh, experiences going on within the workplace where there's a sense of separation and a, and a different kind of othering or marginalization that seems to be experienced, at least expressed, experienced by some people, but not all uh, within the dominant majority specifically. And I think, well, what is happening in our narrative? Because here we are, we're talking to communicators, primarily people who do communications within organizations. We're the ones that are putting out the narrative for our DEI strategy. If there is a chief diversity officer, we're partnering with them on what that sounds like, looks like, what that experience is. The word choices ultimately on a regular day-to-day -day cadence is up to us as communicators. So what do we need to do to understand that there's this, the only thing that ever needs to be healed is the sense of separation while there's this concern of otherness and, and, and a shift in marginalization that's going on with the culture, one of the things I'm seeing, and then I'll hand it over to you, is 
that gap, that void within our workplace cultures is a breeding ground for misinformation, disinformation, in particular, the whole idea of anti-wokeness, you know, the, the woke mind virus, you know, blah, 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 woke, as I'm sure, you know, you can, you know, you can share with everybody what the background and the historical context of that term woke actually is. But it leaves this, if we aren't proactive, this is a concern of mine for us as communicators with, with not understanding our role in diversity, equity, and inclusion is that when we leave that void, it will be filled up and it'll make our work actually even harder. This is true. And I think there's a lack of appreciation for the extraordinary role that the workplace has played in creating equity and inclusion. The kinds of things that we're still debating in social political arenas are already foregone conclusions decades ago in the work environment. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say it is the workplace where the most advances have taken place. It was corporations that were the first ones to start with domestic partnerships for same-sex couples. You know, way before there was ever any marriage equality. And even now, when the Supreme Court ruled over 600 of the biggest corporations in the world signed the Friends of the Court brief, the amicus briefs, telling the Supreme Court, hey, let's just do it. Today, a woman has more protections in the workplace than she does any place else. She could, you could be raped right out here in the street and it's somebody's going to film it and it's going to be streaming before you can even get up off the ground and nobody helping you. The workplace is one of the few places where there is some kind of recourse for mistreatment. I can go up and down, whether it's about disabilities or, or, or any of the other issues, that there are actually more protections in the workplace, and the workplace has been the leader in so many of these areas. We still don't have an equal rights amendment in the United States. Mm -hmm. We still don't. You know, but there will be more efforts in the workplace. And, and I'm saying that to say that we stand at a vanguard. The workplace is an arena for important work to be done. And it's the work that needs to be done. And we don't want to exclude the workplace from the arena, but we have to keep our eye on the prize so to speak, as we used to say in the civil rights movement. We too often confuse the means with the ends. We confuse the means with the ends. Supporting the marginalized populations that are in the workplace, 
making sure that there's equity and that there's fairness for them is not the end. That's not the end. That's the means to the end of them being successful in the workplace Mm -hmm. along with everyone else. But I think too many DEI folks have made support of the marginalized populations the ends. It's not the ends. It's the means to the ends. It's like, for what purpose are you doing it? And when will you know what are going to be your measures of success? And when you understand that that's the that there's an end that's greater than just supporting one population, then you're going to do everything that you can to involve everyone. You know, in some of our conversations, I, I, I've said to you, uh, sometimes it, what goes on reminds me of, of sibling rivalry, yeah. where, you, you know, you've got the new kid that comes along and the parents, a lot of times are giving a lot of attention to the baby. Or to, you, you know, the, the, the toddlers. But the 12-year-old, the 13-year-old is feeling resentful. Because they feel like they've lost some prestige. They've lost some position. And all the attention is going towards the baby. And hey, you know, like, what about me? And that's some of what we're seeing in the workplace. Kind of a, well, you know, what about me? Um, <laughs> Why is all the attention like going over here? And and if your goal as a parent is to make a healthy, whole, functional family that works together and supports each other, then you're going to be spending time with the older siblings as well. <laughs> You're, you're going to be making sure and being a bridge between the two, m- making brokering, I'll call it brokering that relationship so that everybody, in fact, is feeling included. You can't trade one for the other and think that we're going to wind up in the kind of diverse environment that ideally that we see as a possibility for greater strength and not divisiveness. Excellent point. I love that analogy. It really sticks with me. Uh, I have a younger sister, 10 years younger than me. And so (laughs) that definitely lands, lands with me. And I also love the analogy of the bridge. That's something that I use in my trainings and workshops a lot is just in general around inclusive communications and introducing that concept and also demystifying it as well and destigmatizing it by, by letting people understand that it's building a bridge for more people to understand what you're doing and whether it's through plain language or whatever it may be, but being more inclusive and representative and helping people feel super smart about what you're talking about and have them see themselves in the work rather than talking down to people or, right. you know, the like. So I appreciate both of those analogies. And you were also giving me a really nice bridge to this next question, which is about 
the DEI why. Now, you contributed an article in our book, The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit. That is the actual title. (laughs) And the book is about adding depth to your organization's communications. And after the first chapter, the very first chapter at the end, we have a number of folks who contributed articles, but you were the first one. And I put you there very intentionally because the, the name of the article, which is a snippet from one of your books, The Deepest Intent, is we called it, What is Your Deepest Intent? So can you walk us through what do you mean by what is your deepest intent and how that relates to our DEI why? Why are we doing DEI? And if we can't answer those questions, what are some ways that we can glean from your article in the book that can give us some ideas of where do we go from here in order to answer our why of DEI? Well, I do think it's important for the profession itself to go back take a few steps back and actually ask itself, what is our why? And quite frankly, I encourage this for all relationships, even one-on-one relationships or parenting relationships. Just what is your why? I heard somebody say not too long ago, I'm not raising children. I'm raising adults. (laughs) And I'm taking care of my children. And and Love and it. just that what just that reframing was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of many of our problems. A lot of folks have raised children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which has made it an not an inclusion workplace because they're continuing to act as if they're six <laughs> on the playground. Yes. <laughs> right. So to, to do that reset, to go back, to take a look, you know, I think is really important. I personally believe that ultimately that why is tied back to my original comments about the promise. What is the promise of this nation? What is the promise of the democracy? That there can be equity, that there can be inclusion, that there can be opportunity that people can rise to the occasion without there being barriers or things that are inhibiting them from being whatever it is that they can be. And that ultimately, just as I was saying about the myth of the, of the, of the immigrants, that ultimately we're stronger. We're stronger. There's something about the gene pool from a, physics standpoint that gets stronger when it's mixed up a little bit. <laughs> it, it becomes more resilient and it's able to be more adaptive and more responsive. So I believe that just for the, the health and the sake of the business environment as a living organism, that it needs to make sure that it's not susceptible by having to narrow a, a focus that's going to prevent its, its resilience. 
in the article, I talk about intention and intent. And intent not as a goal, something on the back end, something that we're striving for, but that intent is a place of integration. And that intent is actually on the front end. In fact, your intent arrives before you do. No matter how much you try to camouflage it up, your real intent has, an, has, has a scent. It, 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 it has an odor. It, it has a vibration. So many times people have tried to hire me and tell me about all of their corporate goals or whatnot, but I know they brought me in because there was some kind of brouhaha or, or, or blow up, or they're trying to hire me for window dressing or whatever. You, you, you can't camouflage the intent. Um, <laughs> Exactly. And, and the impacts is talent as well, either from a retention or a hiring or attraction standpoint. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're conscious about your intent, your intent has these three components. The first component is alignment. The second is your motivation. And the third are your processes. So in your alignment, you bring everything together, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your emotions, your actions, your, all of it comes together. Because we have this extraordinary capacity as human beings to be at cross purposes, to say this, do that, think something else, feel something else. And, 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 and that, um, cross purposes is an energy drain and it leaks. And you'll find that so many of our DEI efforts are like that. The, the, Corporate heads say this thing, and then the field officers are doing this other thing, and then then the trainers are trying to do this, and it's not it's not all mm -hmm. lining up. So mm -hmm. it's like we have the guts, but it's a leaky exactly. gut. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I want to be very clear: line it up within yourself first. Mm -hmm. Put your own mask on first. Be try you, before you try to do it for the whole company. Because we're, what do you say? What, what comes out of you? Do people know what you stand for and not just what you stand against? Think, you know, think about that. Do, do you complain more about your company and your DEI work? Then do you speak vision? Because pain pushes until vision pulls. Say that again, please. Yes. That comes to the number two, the motivation. Pain pushes until vision pulls. Okay. So what is your vision that's pulling you into it? Alcoholism may get you into recovery, but it can't keep you there. You, you have to have a vision of sobriety that is so strong that it pulls you over. Well, I contend that the stuff that we're trying to get over with all of the hierarchy and the supremacy and all of the rest of that, it's like addictions. It's just like addictions. Mm -hmm. And you have to own it to go into recovery. And recovery is a constant process. You can't go to sleep. So this like checklist, like I, I, I did it. We've done that. That's passe. That was like two decades ago. No, it's just like with recovery. You will be susceptible and you'll go back. You will go back and you'll start repeating the same things again. 
So the why are you doing it? What is your motivation? What, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your vision? And is that pure? Okay. Because it's more important that your motivation be pure. You can say the wrong stuff. All right. People are always terribly afraid of being politically incorrect. If your motivation is good, people will cut you some slack. Mm -hmm. They may roll their eyes a couple of times. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. but they won't just dismiss you because they'll know you mean well, that th they'll mm -hmm. know you're coming from a good space. I'm not saying that excuses you from learning, right. but it's just that there's life after making mistakes when we're highly motivated. And last but not least I... is the processes that, that however you want to wind up at the end, you have to be that along the way. If, if, if you want something that's a community event, you have to build it with the community. If you want there to be some kind of equity and fairness, you can't get there cheating and, and backstabbing. <laughs> so whatever that dream is of what you think you're going to have at the end, if it's cross-cultural communication, you have to have cross-cultural communication along the way put into place where you think you want to go because those are the seeds that are going to get you there that have to blossom. <laughs> I'm just going to give everybody a beat there. That was incredible. That, that, that framework uh, keeps me accountable mm -hmm. in my work when I'm working with clients. Uh, for sure. And to your point of you can say something wrong and still survive yeah. as long as you keep that learning mm -hmm. moment, you know, uh, that opportunity. I'm a product of that. I have said some stupid shit. I have done the wrong thing. I have said the wrong thing. And yet people know what I'm trying to do and that I am a human being. Yeah. And I guess you could say I'm a role model <laughs> of, of a learning environment, you know, where there's giving, we're giving each other grace yeah. because I do take the learning. I take the learning very seriously and I won't, I will make new mistakes, but I won't make the same mistakes. Yeah. This, the things that I'm talking about are things of life. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're applying them to the workplace, but anybody listening, apply anything that I've said to all areas of your life. What is your intent in everything for your life, for how you show up as a, a partner, how you show up as a parent, how you show up in spiritual community, how you do your profession, all of that. I'm going to actually stop here, Rev, okay. and we're, we're going to do a part two. And in that part two, as I mentioned, we'll talk about that hesitancy, the pushback, there's all kinds of words for it, the sabotage. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk more about the role of language in creating the experiences of people and what our role is as communicators in role modeling that language. But something you shared with me way back when I was starting in on this work, you wrote a couple of things. I don't know if you remember this or not, but you wrote a couple of things for me, which I have incorporated into my training. 
and 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 obviously let everybody know that it's from you. A, a couple of things that you talk about is what workplace language registers. So we'll talk about that. And also you did a rather personal piece that you asked me to share within my trainings and workshops that talk about from the perspective of someone who's been historically marginalized within the workplace, what your hopes are when you walk into a workplace and how you are spoken to and treated and what you're looking for within the language. So we'll, we'll tackle those topics in the next time that we have you on as a guest at communicate like you give a damn. What are your final thoughts about how we can moving on from, you know, what we, we, what we're going to take away from you in this session how do we communicate like we give a damn uh, based on what we heard from you today? <laughs> Final words I would say is remember that there is a difference between intent and impact. Yes. Okay. And if you, if you want to be better at anything, then you have to be willing to drop the defensiveness and be willing to put yourself in a position to, in fact, get critical feedback. And I'm not saying your whole company has to do it, but I highly suggest that you go on your own little one-on-one -on -one conversations and just do an inquiry with people what their perceptions are of the impact of your DEI work and how it's playing out mm -hmm. for them, you know, and as diverse of a group as you can possibly, you know, talk to and be willing to hear what you hear, be, be, be willing to hear it and take it into consideration. I'm not saying that you can make everybody happy. But what I know is that if we go from blame to curiosity, whether it's one-on-one -on -one relationships or corporate relationship, we'll find that sometimes we're thinking they're thinking something and that actually isn't what they're thinking. <laughs> mm -hmm. What they're mm -hmm. thinking is something else. <laughs> And if we're going to play a broker role, which is what I see DEI as, it, it's a broker role. It's a bridge role. It's trying to bring the parties together. And unless we're willing to hear the deepest hurts, pains, and aspirations of the people that we're ultimately wanting to impact, including how they're feeling about us, then we're going to be cutting ourselves short. Hmm. You reminded me of a uh, research report that came out a few years ago that was published in uh, Harvard Business Review, where the study included over a thousand companies and 96 to 98% of them had established DEI programs. And they did a study and asking employees who are just like within, you know, middle and early, uh, not in the leadership roles within the company, 
you know, how has this DEI program that your organization put so much investment and time into, how has it impacted and improved your, your day-to-day life? And 75% of those employees says it doesn't impact my day-to-day life at all. That's something we're trying to solve for is to take it from the top and bring it down into the bottom, that intent and that impact, that desired impact in actually improving the everyday experience of employees. And communications can lead that work in partnership with other departments, especially uh, DEI practitioners. So with this, I am so excited to get to talk to you again and share more uh, with folks on how we can all continue to communicate like we give a damn. Thank you. Rev, always a pleasure. (laughs) And to everybody that's out there doing this really hard work, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now is not the time to get discouraged. (laughs) Mm. It's not. Yes, that's right. How can people find you and stay in contact with you? Yes. Uh, You can follow me on uh, social media. You can go to my website. Um, I have podcasts that are up to, as Kim mentioned earlier, my branding is Rev D now. (laughs) Not later. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> there is an urgency around this work. Thank you for bringing that as part of your brand as well. Thank you. So, thank you for listening, and we'll we'll have you back again. Okay. Take care. Okay. So, what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.